You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vore, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Hi, Holly. Hi, Robert. How are you today? I'm okay. I'm okay. How yeah. are you doing? I am. Uh, I'm. I'm okay. You know the you know like the classic feelings wheel. Yes. It has yeah. everything. I feel yeah. like I, that's like the whole thing. Yeah. Is all at once. I, <laughs> yes. All of yes. it. Yes. Um, yeah. Is like you know kind of the, for the past week has been or you know a little longer has been mm. um, you know maybe just certain parts feel a little stronger in moments but I feel like the whole wheel. Yeah. That's so. a good answer. I'm going to have to save that one. That's a good answer. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell me about the last week for y'all, for the Vore family. Well, nothing super exciting on like the family front, I don't think. I mean, we're just like fully in summer mode. But mm-hmm. I, I, I think, you know, obviously, uh, if listeners listened to last week, or even just if you're aware of obviously like what is happening in yeah. our country and the world in general, right? Yeah. I, we pushed... So the interview we have today, which we'll talk about in a second, uh, Mm -hmm. was supposed to be last week, right? Right. And we ended up pushing it back so we could re-air our conversation with Austin Channing Brown. So obviously a a lot of things in terms of uh, trying to listen, trying to uh, wrestle with, uh, you know, my own biases and Mm -hmm. uh, complicity in systemic racism Mm -hmm. um, while trying to... uh, advocate for and amplify you know black voices in our country Mm -hmm. um and obviously scrolling through you know twitter feeds and things of just (laughs) very traumatic videos right yeah Um, and you know what that does kind of secondary trauma wise but then also like trust in systems and you know i think we all were already in this weird space we've talked about it a bunch on the show right of like all these Mm -hmm. existential questions of like oh all the systems that we thought were kind of in place and how we understood the world to work uh, yeah. did not did not were exposed in yeah. the coronavirus world. Yep. And then obviously this on top of it, um, which is from like a very privileged position mm-hmm. to say like, oh, these things that I thought worked did not right. And I didn't I didn't have a hundred percent faith in our systems or anything anyway. But to like right. watch it play out repeatedly is is jarring. Yeah. Um, but then moments of, you know, like I, I went um, to some of the Atlanta protests and mm-hmm. this, I think part of it was like taking some action, but also I think just seeing the sheer amount of people there, like it, I could not see the end of the march in either direction, mm-hmm. no matter where I was. And yeah. like just seeing what feels like kind of a, a stronger wave for change even like across social media and stuff like that, right? You're Mm -hmm. seeing people say things that never would have said things in the last however long. Mm -hmm. So balancing that like kind of cautious hopefulness with the reality of what's happening with like, okay, COVID is still happening Mm -hmm. with, I still have to exist. I still have to sit in front of clients on a computer screen at the moment, right? But like, I still have to be present in that space and I still have to play with gray and I still have to mm-hmm. hang out with Brooke and I still have to, you know, like all the things that I have to go grocery shopping, right? Like mm-hmm. um, what I do with kind of the whole wheel of emotions while also functioning in the day to day. So it's a, it's a really interesting time, like space to be in, I think, you know? Yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. And I think that you did a really good job of explaining, you know, a lot of the complexity that each of us are navigating right now and walking through and trying to um, discern what is ours to do and how much to do it and how to balance kind of what you were mentioning in terms of how do we do this in such a way that this is sustainable and that we are able to continue doing this for a long time. Because once the attention is drawn away to the degree that the attention has been on it over the last week. Right. I still want to be in this and I know you still want to be in this and we know people who still want to be in this and so and continuing to fight against this racism. So ways that we can continue to to do this work sustainably while listening and I mean I know it's been the same for me over the last week much 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 more intentional listening 
sitting with the pain, not running away from it, not, you know, scrolling past or anything, but breaking open from it and just lamenting. Yeah. In a lot of ways. So, and then yeah. as you mentioned, you know, holding space for the moments too that, you know, Callie and Oliver and I go outside and have a picnic together and like have these pockets where we're trying, you know, to to still have fun, but also then holding space to talk with Callie and Oliver about what's happening too. Yeah. And just really trying to stay present with each moment. I know you and I were just texting earlier about how both of us and our families were watching um, the Sesame Street Town Hall, and mm-hmm. yeah. I thought they did a really good job with that. And I had a great conversation with Callie and Oliver yeah. after. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I do. I, w- I want to be really clear. Obviously, you and I are talking as friends, and because we have asked each other, right? Like we're talking. We can only talk about kind of our own experiences. I know right. you and I have both tried to be pretty intentional about not centering our experience on social media, things like that, right? Because that's For not sure. yeah. our goal just in right. this space, you know, in the intro, usually we check in with each other. So like our experiences are here to be talked about, but, you know, obviously there's lots of layers and other voices that we want to be amplifying and, and advocating for as well. So mm-hmm. yep, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. That's good. Well, I'm also a little sad because this is our last episode <laughs> of the season. Of the season. Well, right, 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 right. Well, wait, hold up. Are we doing like the one or are you wanting to ditch that? I'll let no, you know. No, no, no. We'll definitely, we'll still do. Uh, it's our last us. guest. I just meant the last guest. Yes. The okay. last interview okay. of the season. So, I mean, even mm. that comes with complexity because I feel a little sad because I've missed, I mean, we haven't recorded an interview in a handful of weeks, which I, I know. have missed. But yeah. also has been nice, and I'm looking forward yeah. to not thinking about editing and all that. So you know, I know yeah. it's one one moment at a time, right? One yeah. day at a time, one moment at a time. Yeah, yeah. holding all of it. Yeah, the whole wheel, the whole feelings wheel, the all whole it together. Feelings wheel. Yes, <laughs> we're gonna link the feelings wheel for it. Yeah. <laughs> no, okay, some, somebody's like, "What are they talking about?" <laughs> no, but I, yeah, I'm, I am. This was a. I think this is a great uh, conversation for us to end on for this season, or a great interview that we have um, to end the season. But yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting walking into the summer, and not even recording intros either. Yeah, yeah. Well, I will say, obviously, like I mentioned, we recorded this interview um, a little bit back, uh, probably a month and a half ago, maybe by now. So uh, if there's conversations, I know we mentioned some current events in terms of quarantine things, but obviously it's not a current, current conversation. So uh, just keep that in mind in case we don't speak to some things. But So tell us about our episode this week. Yeah, so we are talking this week with Dr. Alex Korb. He is a neuroscientist, a writer, uh, a bunch of other things. You'll hear that mm-hmm. in his bio. Uh, <laughs> one of the more interesting bios I think we've had the chance to read on yes. the show. Mm-hmm. But he's also the author of a book called The Upward Spiral, Using Neuroscience to Reverse the Course of Depression One Small Change at a Time, and the, the Upward Spiral Notebook, that, um, workbook, mm-hmm. not notebook, that goes along with it, which is a book that I love. I think, I, I'm sure that I mentioned this in the episode, we recorded it a bit ago, so I don't remember because I haven't edited it yet. But uh, it's one of the most easy to read books that I have read from someone who uh, is also like quite a brilliant neuroscientist, right? So Mm -hmm. just the way he writes is very accessible. And he talks a lot about, right, like using small steps in terms of how that keeps us healthy, like making small choices, setting ourselves up um, in ways to, like it says, kind of spiral upwards out of mm-hmm. anxiety, depression, things like that, as opposed to uh, uh, spiraling downwards, which is a, you know, the, the the spiral idea is one that, I mean, I can't count the number of clients I've had mm. that have used the spiral kind of imagery, right? Of like, yeah. once I kind of get going down, it's like, it gets harder and harder to kind of pull up out of it, right? Yeah. So I think this episode is awesome. Uh, he's very fun. He, yes, <laughs> very funny. We talk a little bit about like his dabbling in uh, stand-up comedy and just a wide variety of things um, mm-hmm. like the coach of the year for women's ultimate frisbee and things like that uh-huh. so, uh, just a very interesting human being yes. uh, and someone I was I've wanted to have on for a while um, we will get out of the way and let our listeners listen to this conversation with Dr. Alex Korb all right enjoy y'all 
So don't say anything <laughs> interesting. And now we're recording. And now yeah, you're recording. I'm, I'm don't say yes. anything interesting. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh. Well, we are here already chatting with, I'll just roll into it, Dr. Alex Korb. He is a neuroscientist, writer, and coach. He has studied the brain for over 15 years, attending Brown University as an undergraduate and later earning his PhD in neuroscience from UCLA. He's published over a dozen peer-reviewed journal articles. He's the author of The Upward Spiral, Using Neuroscience to Reverse the Course of Depression One Small Change at a Time, and The Upward Spiral Workbook. And this second paragraph is maybe the most interesting. It's most uh-huh. interested I've ever been I reading know, a professional I bio. Know. Uh, As a scientific consultant, he works with biotech companies and other research organizations to help them design and implement and analyze neuroimaging studies. He has coached the UCLA Women's Ultimate Frisbee team for 12 seasons, took a hard left there, and is a three-time award winner for USA Ultimate's Coach of the Year. His expertise extends into leadership and motivation, mindfulness, physical fitness, and even stand-up comedy. Alex, how are you doing today? I'm great. I guess you got the whole bio. You got my whole CV there. Yeah. Just, well, hey, I don't know who made your website, but I pulled it off there. So you can <laughs> blame them. But that's such the, a uh, spectrum of things. No, that's right. No, they, it is. I, I did. Uh, I made my website. I'm, I'm proud of it. I you know, wanted to include all of my many endeavors just so people didn't miss anything. I guess I need to update that because now I've, I've been coaching a, a few years longer uh and yes i realized i've i've been i was trying to calculate how how many years have i been studying the brain and i started majoring in neuroscience i took my first neuroscience class in 1998 so i guess it's been a while yeah well is there anything else i mean i know you you know you said you included a lot of stuff in there but is there anything else that our audience should know about you before we you know kind of dive in yeah i mean well Basically, after coaching Ultimate Frisbee for so long, and then also writing a book about neuroscience, I was like, oh, how could we put those hands together? And combined with the fact that after I uh, wrote the book, a lot of people contacted me and were like, oh, this is great. Like, how about, you know, I need a little help uh, putting this into practice in my life. And at first, I thought of that as a distraction. And then I realized, oh, that's like just something I could do because that's basically what I've been doing with the ultimate frisbee team <laughs> is to coach them uh, not just in the terms of teaching them specific skills or strategies but the the part that I had liked most about coaching the ultimate frisbee team was helping people overcome their personal barriers and reframe things so that they uh, can enjoy their activities more and not be so overwhelmed by expectations or other uncontrollables. So I started offering uh, personal coaching. And I've, I've been doing that a lot more recently. And, and, and now I'm developing courses for people to take because I realized reaching out in one to one is, uh, isn't always the most scalable thing I can't have as broad an impact. Hmm. And I suppose the the other thing related to that is that I, I started teaching a class at UCLA teaching undergraduates about all these ideas. Uh, And we snuck it in there as an introductory life sciences course so that they can get credit for learning about the brain because it is an introductory class about science in general and life sciences in particular. But at the same time, I'm teaching them all of these things that are useful ways to modulate the activity and chemistry of your key brain circuits to be happier and more productive and so the the students really appreciate it because uh they're confused at first because they're (laughs) like wait i'm I'm, am i supposed to just learn this and like is this gonna be on the test and like well yeah some of this can be on the test but some of this will just benefit you in your real life and they they're confused by that uh, at first that of course would actually (laughs) help them yeah well, and I'll even say, so I've read this book and then obviously you, you made a workbook out of it. And then right there, you're talking about doing this coaching and practical applications. And I think that is mm-hmm. what I loved most about 
the book is it's written, it doesn't shy away from the neuroscience aspect, but it's also written mm -hmm. in this very practical, accessible way where like when I'm reading it, I'm not Googling a bunch of words, even though I'm like, I mean, there's a lot of things that I read even as a mental health professional that I say, I don't, this is a little over my head, but it's like quote unquote uh -huh. written for, you know, just anyone to read, but like the way uh -huh. you write, and it sounds like you really emphasize this practical, like how does it, how is this applicable and how does this help me out kind of way? Yeah. Well, I think that, uh, thank you. It is also funny that when I read the comments, uh, like on Amazon reviews that people make about it, some people complain like, oh, this is, you know, just like a self-help book <laughs> and other, I'm like, well, yeah. And other people are like, there's too much science in here. And I'm like, it's both of those things. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. they're like, I realized my specific niche was to combine the neuroscience with the self-help because there are tons of books that are self-help books. They'll tell you do this and do this and do this, and you can read any of them. Uh, but for me, I don't necessarily like just doing what someone says until I understand well, why. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and that's part of the reason yeah. why I became a scientist. Mm -hmm. And I realized that there are many intelligent, successful, skeptical people who want to understand why these things work. And the irony is that you don't need to know why these things work in order for them to work. <laughs> like you could just exercise, you could just improve your sleep habits, you could just practice gratitude or um, deep breathing. But mm -hmm. if if you go through most of your life, you know, being skeptical and thinking critically about things, well, you're not just going to suddenly change the kind of person that you are. And maybe those are positive qualities. But even our positive qualities sometimes get in the way of our well-being. Mm -hmm. But so I wanted to address it for sort of that particular audience of like people who are like, oh, I get it. Like exercise is modulating the serotonin system in the brain. It's reducing cortisol in the long term, which is a key stress hormone. And it's having, it's modulating the habit reward centers in the brain. And uh, for a lot of people, like understanding what these small life changes are doing helps give them yeah. more motivation to actually implement them and put them into practice. Or it helps give them a little bit of understanding that like these things aren't gonna work immediately but knowing that something is happening in your brain and that if you just keep doing it it gives you sort of the faith uh, because it's not just faith you can rely oh there's actual scientific evidence that I should just keep doing this and it will uh, have the results sort of like using fertilizer for plants like we know that fertilizer helps plants grow. And if you knew that, you're like, oh, great. I put my seeds in, I put my fertilizer. And then the next day you come back and you're like, where are my plants? Well, like if someone explained to you, look, yes, these are going to help your plants grow, but it's not immediate, but just, you know, keep giving the, you know, sunshine and water and giving those things and then good stuff will happen. And the same is true of your brain. Like our brain has all these different chemical needs and, yeah. It's, it's mm -hmm. not going to be immediate change all the way, particularly, you know, if you're stuck in anxiety or depression, just you can't always fix your moment to moment feelings. Mm -hmm. But if you give your brain the things that it needs to, to work at its best, then over time, you can start to shift things and, and create uh, an upward spiral. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, I know Robert is, I have some really great questions specific to your book, The Upward Spiral. But before mm. we jump into those, I really, I really want to hear how you got into the stand-up comedy stuff and what that all is looking like. <laughs> how you're weaving that well, into all this? The um, well, yeah. I mean, unfortunately, I don't do stand-up any anymore. Mm. Yeah, but the good news is, I'm you know, I'm still funny. So <laughs> Don't worry too much. You can host a podcast and it can be uh, sit-down comedy. It's, yeah. I am sitting down. Right. Uh, well, the the reason why I don't do it anymore, the short answer is coaching Ultimate Frisbee. The longer answer is about 
why I started doing it in the first place. And if I trace it back, I think it really comes down to the my girlfriend in high school who was talking about how funny her ex-boyfriend was and I being like, you know, an insecure high school boy date because she was a few years older than me. She, uh, I was like, well, but you know, you think I'm funny too, right? And she was like, well, yeah, I mean, you're funny, but you're not that funny, which is kind of a mean thing to say, but it really, mm. I don't think I realized it at the time, <laughs> it got in deep and uh-huh. I started doing comedy. I've always liked writing and I started in college because there was a guy who's advertising like, oh, we should have a stand-up show. He's actually a writer uh, on Late Night with Seth Meyers now. But um, so he in- inspired me to, okay, you know, when you think of something funny, you write it down. And I, I performed comedy. It was so much fun. You know, people are laughing. And uh, at some point after doing it for, I did it for like three years in college. And then I did it for a couple of years after college, you know, open mic nights and then working up a little bit more to book shows. And like the next step would be to like go on the road and I was sort of hesitant about that. And it was, you know, sort of a grind and it wasn't as much fun as it used to be. And I realized that like why I thought I was doing it had sort of changed. Hmm. And it was sort of addictive at the beginning. And then it sort of became this thing that I kind of had to keep doing, but wasn't bringing me as much joy anymore. And I realized that... Hmm part of the reason I had been doing it was to convince myself that I was funny. And uh, in thinking back on all of my performances where I'd performed in front of 400 people and made them laugh, or I'd performed in front of five people and made them laugh. And it, performing in front of five people, by the way, is way more difficult. Um, Mm. Like, yes, there were times where people didn't laugh, but I kind of realized, oh, that's, yeah, like even if you're really funny, like there are times when people don't laugh and you sort of have to accept that as a limitation about yourself. Yeah. And even if certain people don't think you're funny, that doesn't mean you're not funny. Mm-hmm. And so after all of this, I'd sort of, I realized I'd, I'd finally convinced myself that I was funny. And the way that you know that you've convinced yourself of something, that you've accepted your limitations uh, is that if somebody points them out, like someone says, Hey, you're not funny or that wasn't funny you don't care. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so like the, the like yes, I I there were many reasons I had done stand up like it was enjoyable and I like performing, I like writing and crafting jokes, but part of it was driven by this need to to prove to people and prove to myself that I was funny. And once I had mm. sort of accepted that that part of it was no longer there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was like, oh, well there are other ways to have a captive audience and to um, engage people. And that's when I started coaching ultimate Frisbee more, mm. so but, awesome. but yeah, one of the things that taught me about well-being is that our motivations for doing things are often unclear to us, but they're, they're also, uh, disparate. Like they're often multiple reasons why we do something. And if like the reason, one of the main reasons why you're doing it is that you feel like you have to, to fill, fulfill some need then it's often you can be successful but it's often very hard to find it fulfilling or to be happy in that gosh Uh, that's really good and that's why um that's one of the things that that helped make me understand well-being more it's like oh i don't have to do this Mm. anymore Mm -hmm. and so i could just be funny and real. i don't have to get up on stage and do it gosh yeah well, I don't have a great segue, but I'd love to well, talk about Well, I wish some I had that. a good joke <laughs> yeah. to end no, that well, with. I'm really grateful that you actually unpacked all of that, though. There were a couple of quotes from that that I just actually typed into our show notes that I'm going to hang on to and circle back to and chew on a little bit more. Oh. So they were well, very good. Awesome. Yeah. Well, and but actually, it um, and this, this um, relates to the science as well mm-hmm. because there's a, a research study that has one of my favorite quotes, although I can't remember it word for word now exactly, uh, from any scientific study because scientific studies aren't usually known for being quotable. Mm-hmm. But they <laughs> I, <yes. laughs> looked, 
they looked at people who were morbidly obese who needed to lose several hundred pounds, and they found that you could successfully get someone to safely lose, say, 200 or 300 pounds by just monitoring them really close and monitoring their you know, electrolytes and everything and putting them on a very restrictive diet of like 500 calories a day. You could get people to lose hundreds of pounds. The problem is that they found that if you come back to them a year later, 70% of them have gained all the weight back. Mm. And they sort of looked at like how the fact that physicians often look at like, why are these people doing this thing that's so bad for them? And they flipped it and asked the question like, what is, how is eating benefiting these people? Like they, they're doing it because they're gaining some benefit from it, even though it's having these negative health consequences. Mm. And uh, they found that the two biggest predictors of whether people would gain all the weight back was a history of childhood abuse or being in a, in a currently abusive relationship. Mm. And mm. like eating is, is a way to, you know, distract yourself from all the other terrible stuff going on in your life. Eating actually activates the, the rest and digest system, which is complementary to our fight or flight response. And so it de stresses mm. us yeah and i had a friend actually who weighed uh, 700 pounds or so when i first met him and he he pointed out that like you know yes this is the the only way that i can feel calm but yet it's also the source of things causing me problems but when i'm stressed out well then i want to eat but the eating is what is causing me problems and the the line that they had in the book is that People are eating to, or in the, in the paper, people are eating to, to deal with these other problems, and that's the motivation, but the eating isn't going to solve those problems. And what they said is, it's hard to get enough of something that's almost the right thing. Hmm. Huh. That if you Gosh. keep, like, eating helps sort of deal with some of these bigger issues because some there's there's no other more obvious direct e easy way to deal with those other issues and it and it sort of solves the problem but it doesn't actually solve the problem and it causes problems of its own mm. and when we get stuck in that mode we just sort of compulsively go down that path and it's very hard to be uh, to be happy when we're sort of stuck in that addictive mode mm -hmm. and that that applies to so many other things in our life that we feel compelled you know to eat food or you feel compelled to uh, drink a beer to deal with your stress or you can feel compelled to isolate when you're feeling socially anxiety or you feel compelled even to work hard and you know be successful you feel compelled to do stand-up comedy to pr <laughs> um, prove that you're funny mm -hmm. and like when you're doing it out of a sense of compulsion like, yeah, you might be successful or it might work, but it's usually not going to make you happy. Yeah. So you ended up doing like a really great segue, right? Because in this book, the <laughs> upward spiral, obviously the, the flip side of it has to do with downward spirals, right? And this sense of like yeah. getting stuck in uh, these things that make us feel a certain way and then we like do coping mechanisms and then they make us continue, right? Like kind of this spiral idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I know a lot of people, we hear often people talk about like depression or anxiety or things like that, right? Being kind of problems with brain chemistry, right? And I, I, I know a lot of that has to do with pushing back against like stigma and shame and stuff like that. Yes. But can you explain kind of your basic foundation or understanding in terms of the upward spiral, the downward spiral, all of that? Yeah. Well, I, though I just wanted to address that, that first point about mm. the the chemical descriptions are pushing back against stigma and shame because there used to you know be a lot more stigma against depression i mean there still is but like we used to people used to think like oh you know just snap out of it and then this this whole medical model came along and was like hey guys like stop stigmatizing these people like there's a brain imbalance there's something you know there's a chemical imbalance there's something wrong with the brain and that's 
sort of helpful because it's like, yeah, we shouldn't blame people for having, you know, this disorder, like is something wrong with their brain. But the problem with that view is that then if, if you have depression or anxiety and you're like, oh, there's something wrong with my brain, my brain is broken, then it sort of makes it harder to feel like you can do anything about it. And mm. one of the, um, the most helpful articles that I came across actually came out after my book came out, but it um, really supported all these ideas, which are, yes, uh, depression is rooted in your biology, but your biology is not fixed. It's malleable and can be reshaped. And those two things, I think, are really important to keep in mind. Like, yes, it is a biological thing. There's something that is going on. Your brain isn't working exactly as you would like it to, or it's not uh, being the most adaptive for the specific situation that you're in. But by making small changes in your thoughts or actions or interactions or environment, you can actually change the activity and chemistry of key brain circuits. And that is really the essence of the upward spiral, that just making these small life changes are going to cause some tiny little brain change that's not going to fix everything, uh, but it's going to make the next change a little bit more accessible. Yeah. Thank you. And one of the things that I uh, just related to the stigma that I, I really like to emphasize to people is that there's, there's nothing wrong, quote unquote, wrong with the brain and depression. And, and that's confusing sometimes to people because you're like, wait, but you just said it was based in biology. And it's like, well, yes, like there's something going on in your brain where these circuits aren't quite balanced in the right way, but it's not helpful to think of it as something wrong with your brain or something broken about your brain because there's no brain scan or EEG or MRI that you can get that can diagnose you with depression. It's just these, these subtle changes in the tuning of these various circuits and how they're communicating with and regulating each other. And, and sometimes we can get stuck in this downward spiral inadvertently because some change happens in our life or we make some decision that has some unfortunate consequence on the slight tuning of one circuit, which makes it, you know, harder to then motivate ourselves to exercise or to go out to a party. And then we, you know, it makes the next change a little harder and we sort of get stuck. But it's not useful to think of that as something wrong with the brain because often the same circuits that get us stuck in one situation are actually advantageous in a different situation. So it's not even something wrong with your brain. It's just the way that your brain is working right now is not the most adaptive to the specific situation that you're in. But yeah. you can take small actions to change that brain activity and chemistry, or you can take other actions to change the situation that you're in and use that same dynamics of the brain to spiral up. Mm. Mm. So can you give like a, I know in the book, there's some examples like from your life where this kind of downward spiral happens. I think there's one about like after writing for a long day, things like that. Can you give, mm. you know, for people that are trying to kind of conceptualize this, what a like really tangible example of this kind of downward spiral looks like. And then maybe we can use that to say, can we flip it? And what would an upward spiral look like? Mm. Right. Yeah. Well, the uh, downward spiral can happen as I mentioned, inadvertently, and it can even happen with like seemingly good intentions or seemingly good life changes. For example, when I first started doing a postdoc, like the research position after my PhD, my boss bought me a MacBook Air and he was like, oh, you know, I want you to use this computer and like, because it's so lightweight, you can just work from anywhere. And I thought, oh, this is great. And I loved it. Like, the, you know, it's so easy to carry around and I could just sit with it on my lap. And so often I, I worked from home because I was like, well, I don't need to go into the office. It's so much more convenient to work from home. And that worked out great for like two weeks. And mm. it took me a, a few more weeks to realize like, wait, things aren't going as great as they had seemed because I'm just not being as productive as I you know want to be. And 
my you know body just feels kind of stiff and I realized like there are all these little things contributing to that like how much harder it is to be productive from your couch because your tv is sitting right there and uh, and your refrigerator and all these temptations that wouldn't exist if you were just in an office with other people uh, and that sort of made me realize like all right it's much easier to avoid temptation than it is to resist the temptation once it's triggered and another aspect was just the lack of exercise that I was getting and the lack of sunlight exposure because when I used to go into the office even if I drove though sometimes I would bike ride even if I drove I just have to walk to my car and then I have to walk from the parking lot to my office and then uh, and I'd so get a little bit of exercise and I'd, you know, be out in the bright sun in the morning, which affects your circadian rhythms and helps your sleep patterns. And oftentimes when I was leaving work, I would walk past the gym on the way to my car because I was working at UCLA and there was the, the gym right there. And so it was very easy to be like, uh, let me just, I'll just walk into the gym before I go home. And because it's much easier to, to work out when you are walking past the gym, the idea of working out doesn't seem so reprehensible. But if you're sitting on your couch and you've been sitting on your couch all day, the, the amount of energy it would take to motivate yourself to leave your house and go to some other gym is much higher. And yeah, you could do it, but it just has subtle influences on the brain's you know, habit and impulse circuits. And I realized that... Um, what fixed my problem is, well, oh, even though I don't have to go into the office, my life is better when I force myself to go in. Hmm. And the that realization didn't solve everything because it still takes a little bit of willpower. Because in the morning, I would wake up and I'd start getting ready for work. And then I'd have a thought that was like, well, we'll just work from home today. It'll be fine. And it's so easy to like, oh yeah, like fall into that thought. And, you know, the first time it happened, when I first got my computer, it's perfectly reasonable to believe that thought. Because like, sure, why not? Try it. Like I hadn't worked from home, let's try it. But after having tried to do it for two weeks or a month, like I realized, oh, like no, that's just, yeah, that's just the part of my brain that wants me to do the easiest thing in the immediate short term that's like the impulsive part of the brain that says like no the easiest thing to do right in the next you know five minutes would be to just sit on the couch instead of to go uh drive get in your car and bike ride to work Mm. and the part of your brain that cares about the long term that realizes oh no but that's actually like yes that is the easier path to just sit on the couch right now but that's actually not going to take me where i want to go and yeah. that part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, is the more advanced part of the brain. And one of its roles is to, is to regulate these lower level regions that are just trying to get us to do whatever's uh, immediately easiest or immediately pleasurable. Yeah. So obviously, right there, you're touching on it some, right, in terms of how do we switch this up to go into kind of upward spirals. And obviously, in mm-hmm. the... Uh, subtitle of the book, you talk about small changes, right? And this is something that I love because I very frequently with my clients, I use the expression, right? What's the smallest step you can take, right? In terms of like Mm -hmm. getting some wind Mm -hmm. in your sails. Yeah. There's a a part in the book where you use this kind of metaphor of like a, a super busy airport and one small change in one area ends up having this ripple of impact and effect like all across and mm-hmm. and ends up having all yeah. sorts of these changes. Can you talk some about why it is that like very small things such as I'm going to get up and shower first or like I'm going to put my shoes on at the beginning of the day or you know any of these types of like small yeah. things end up having these like bigger impacts? Right. Well, it has to do with the the nature of how the brain works. And I'm using a, a technical term that the, the brain is a nonlinear dynamic system, which if you're not familiar with that language, like <laughs> uh, a nonlinear dynamic system is also can also uh, be 
thought of as a chaotic system, uh, but even in chaos, there can be order. But to, to make it more concrete, like other systems that share similar properties are things like the stock market or the weather. And in, in these types of systems, sometimes small changes can have big effects because one little change amplifies and can continue to have further changes. Mm. And that's just a, a feature of how these systems operate. On the, on the flip side, though, another aspect of these systems is that sometimes patterns can start to form that become very stable over time, no matter how much you try to influence them. And like those are two sort of features of these of these types of nonlinear dynamic systems. And one example uh, that's more concrete is like a hurricane. You can't uh, know exactly what causes a hurricane. You can't predict when a hurricane is going to form exactly. You kind of know their general tendencies. They they form in this part of the world. They form around this time. But like once that pattern starts to form, it becomes self sustaining and um, just sort of uh, self-sustaining over time. And the, the same is true of a traffic jam. I live in Los Angeles, so I think of, uh, of traffic a lot. And traffic jams, like once they start to form and there's like enough cars coming in, then they just, there can just be this standing wave of stopped cars that just exist. And, and maybe it was, was caused by an accident, for example, or construction. But even if you removed the initial cause, like you remove the accident or remove the, you stop doing construction. Just the fact that there's this, there's some stopped cars. Well, the cars coming in, or they're going to stop behind them, and, and it becomes a standing wave, this pattern that is self-reinforcing over time. And that's the same dynamics that's happening in the brain that we can get stuck in these patterns of anxiety or depression. But the good news mm. is that because of that's the, na the nature of these systems, nonlinear dynamic systems, well, sometimes small changes can totally disrupt the entrenched dynamics. And that can happen in a, in a bad way for you, where the, your, the actions mm -hmm. that you have have unintended negative consequences, and that creates this unhelpful pattern that starts to form. Uh, but it can also happen in positive ways that... Yeah, you don't see how, you know, just working at, from your office versus working at home could really have that much. But like, by making those small changes, it changes your environment that you're in, it changes the sunlight that you're getting, it changes the activity that you're getting. And each of those is having a little effect on the activity and chemistry of some brain region, which then changes or can change your outlook or change your emotions and, and then those can feed back and, and impact your sleep and then it can that can improve your mood which changes your your sense of what you're grateful for or your social interactions and all of these things because they are interconnected and complex mm -hmm. can be tweaked a little bit and the good news is that like well sometimes it's like even though you're stuck in this terrible situation sometimes just like a tiny little change can like completely solve it. Now, don't expect that every change you're going to make is going to completely solve it because that expectation that, oh, everything I do is going to, going to solve my problem. Well, that expectation is just a thinking habit that you have that is probably working against you <laughs> because mm -hmm. if you make that small change and you were expecting it to fix everything and it only improves things a little bit, well, you're like, oh, well, that didn't fix anything. That was pointless. But that's why it's helpful to recognize that, yes, it sometimes changes in your actions or sometimes it's changed, small changes in your thinking or small changes in your environment that can work together. And mm -hmm. one of the key steps is to notice, well, what are the actions or the thought patterns that I'm having that are getting in the way? of an upward spiral. In other words, if you're driving a car, well, you have your gas and your brake, and 
you might be putting your foot on the gas, but like if you're also putting the foot on the brake, you're not going to go anywhere. So yeah. like once you s- s- just realize, oh, I'm acting or thinking in these ways that are getting in the way of my upward spiral and you just stop, you remove some of those, then it, some of those things can just accelerate all on their own. Yeah. yeah. No, that's good. That's really good. Well, I definitely, I know we wanted to get into some of the specific ideas that you had talked uh, mm-hmm. about in your book, but I really, I first want to kind of note that I know it can be unhelpful sometimes when people offer advice that's like, just go get some exercise or just be right. more thankful. And they kind of use these in some ways as like these blanket kind of bypassing cures that actually end up being right. kind of shaming and, and blaming. Mm-hmm. So can you articulate a little bit about what's different about the suggestions that you give in your book and workbook versus kind of some of these other ways of talking that I just kind of well, mentioned? Yeah. I mean, it's funny, uh, but like in, in many ways it's not different that like, and, and that's probably the most common criticism <laughs> that I read uh, like on the Amazon reviews, which my wife says like, stop reading the Amazon reviews. And I was like, well, if you can't, Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, I don't. It doesn't bother me. It actually motivates me, and I realize, oh, that's an, a symbol, a sign that I've accepted my limitations mm-hmm. as a writer. Like, yeah, not everyone's gonna love it, but I, I, I think of this as a valid criticism, which is people say, like, well, this isn't anything new. Yeah, like exercise is good for you, and social interactions are good for you, and gratitude is good for you, and like, I'm not saying I'm like coming up with like all these amazing new treatments or therapy i'm just explaining how they relate to what is happening in your brain and how uh, many of these things have been around for hundreds or thousands of years but we're just now understanding how they impact the brain and knowing that information about how it impacts the brain allows you to be a little bit more reflective because the problem with say, exercise as a solution or gratitude as a solution is that most people who are offering those solutions are trying to say, like, oh, it's so easy. Like, yeah, you just, like, you just, you just go for a 10-minute run or you, you just, you know, just write down five things you're grateful for every day. And they, they try and paint it as, like, oh, this very easy thing. And in, in some ways, well, it is easy. But if you suffer from depression or anxiety, well, like, your, your brain doesn't perceive it that way and on top of that when you're just doing all of these things that other people are telling you to do well you know it can sort of feel like you're on this treadmill it's okay I have to exercise now and then I have to do this and then I have to like Mm -hmm. and I think it's really helpful for people to understand themselves better so that they can choose to exercise or if they start to notice that this exercise isn't taking them where they want to go or is they're having other problems with it they could choose to not exercise and I I think the way that a lot of sort of gurus frame things is it's not in terms of choice it's in terms of like yeah just just do these five things and that sort of adds stigma and shame because if people are like, well, I don't feel capable of doing those five things, or maybe I did those five things and they didn't work. There's something wrong with me. I, I'm trying to paint the picture that, like, yeah, it's complicated. There's no one pathway to success. There's no one pathway out of depression. I wish I could just tell you, yeah, just do this, this, and this, but I can't because that's not what the science says. But what the science does say that is heartening is that there's no, while there's no one big solution to depression, there are dozens of tiny solutions. And I can't guarantee you which one is going to work for you or even which combination is going to work for you. But I can give you the menu of all the things that you have to order from. Or put another way, like if you picture one of those like, you know, audio sound boards with all these different knobs that you can adjust the volume of the bass or the treble or whatever, like, Science uh, has discovered all these different knobs that you can turn to mm. modulate your, your stress response or your serotonin levels or your norepinephrine levels. And I can't tell you which exact 
uh, recipe is going to give you uh, or the, the right combination for your happiness. But I can give you those options and what are those knobs that you should try fiddling with first and, and try them and uh, you can figure out the solution for yourself. I love And so I, I think yeah. of it as teaching people about their brain and about themselves so they can they can learn for themselves what it requires to be happy. I love that analogy. Like with the knobs, yeah. that's such a great analogy. I think I'm going to use that in the future. <laughs> I like that. And we'll Thank give you. you full credit for it. But yeah. it's really <laughs> well, good. Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 a complex thing because the answer is always easier if it was just like all one thing or all the other. Like either, yep, there's something wrong with your brain and, you know, and this is how we have to fix it. Or like, you know, there's nothing wrong with the brain. You just need to snap out of it. And the answer is actually somewhere in the middle that there are parts of your brain activity and chemistry that you can change by making small yeah. changes in your thoughts and actions and so on. And there are parts of your brain and your life that you can't change and yeah. getting clear in your mind about which is one and which is the other is really important and helpful but you can't always know ahead of time like i you know what what of this you can change and so the only way to know is sort of like well to find out by acting and then you know you continue to act because uh for example when i was working from home and i was like feeling uh, you know, demotivated and everything and wasn't being as productive, well, maybe I could have just changed my thinking and, you know, practiced a little bit more gratitude or focused on these little, you know, hacks for being more productive. And I did try some of those things, but they just didn't work. <laughs> uh, they didn't work enough to where I was like being as, as happy and motivated and productive as I wanted to be. So I was like, oh, well, maybe I just can't think my way out of this particular situation. In this particular situation, I need to take action. I need to change my environment. And so I tried that by going to the office. And guess what? That worked. But there are other situations in your life where, oh, maybe if you just think about it differently or you just focus on something differently, then whew, that's the magical solution. But as to whether or not you're your problems can be solved by just changing your thinking or by just changing your actions or by just changing your environment. I can't tell you that. Or maybe you just need to accept it, <laughs> that you can't change it. I can't tell you that ahead of time, but I can give you the tools to start trying things and letting you know that, yeah, well, exercise is a probably an important thing. You'll probably have to do at some point. And regulating your sleep patterns is probably something that you could try and learning to practice acceptance. Uh, that's another thing that you could try. And, you know, these are things that you can all uh, mix in various patterns and slowly stumble your way forward. Yeah. No, I love that. So I know in the book, you have a whole bunch of kind of ideas and suggestions for these kind of small steps that end up being these big steps, right? And, you know, we don't have done time to go through all of them so i'll definitely put in a plug for both the book the upward spiral and the upward spiral workbook for people that are interested you know with our last couple minutes here if people are listening and they say and by okay. the way i'm like because i can't fit everything like in the book or i'm always coming up with the new ideas too like at my website alexcorbphd.com i i have a blog and that's where i'll be also uh launching some of my courses uh mm. for people to perfect uh, to learn think about these in different ways or to put them into practice. Yeah. That's great. Well, I was going to say for listeners, you know, as we finish out here, if you had, you know, one or two suggestions in terms of where do I start with kind of making these small changes, uh, what would be mm -hmm. kind of just the one or two uh, quick ones that you would give as they go out and purchase your book? <laughs> um, well, the one I often give to people is like, well, just go – for a walk outside in the morning and that is so beneficial in so many ways because that gets you doing something intentionally rather than accidentally because <laughs> oftentimes we wake up in the morning oh we just uh, do whatever impulse pops into our head and the, the more 
that you're controlled by your impulses, then the the more that becomes a habit and the harder it becomes to override and live your life intentionally. So just doing anything intentionally in the morning can be helpful. But like going for a walk is particularly helpful because, well, it's some light level of exercise and it's not so intense that you're going to, uh, you know, that's too tiring. I can't do it. But it's just a small amount of exercise that you can do and you feel confident in your ability to do it. And you get some sunlight exposure both through your skin and your eyes, uh, which have differential effects on the, the brain and body. But one of those primarily being affecting your circadian rhythms because that's your brain's internal clock. And if you get bright light in the morning, that sort of lets your brain know, oh, it's morning now, and it helps you go to bed later. Uh, and so just going for a walk outside in the morning uh, can be a really helpful habit to start to create. It's not going to solve all of your problems, but it's a good place to start if you have no idea what to do. And with that being said, the other key aspect that I would recommend people to do is simply notice and focus on what you can control and notice when you're focusing on the things that you can't control. Because Mm -hmm. even as I, I said, yeah, go for a walk in the morning, you know, I'm sure there are many people listening. They're like, oh, but I can't, you know, go for a walk. I'm supposed to be socially isolating or like, mm. oh, I, you know, I can't because my, you know, I have to get my kids. And it's okay. Like, if you can't do that, the more that you focus on things that you can't do, the more out of control you feel and the more stressed out you get. And, and particularly in these difficult times, it's very easy to focus on all of the things that you can't do or the things that you can't control. And that's the uh, emotional circuitry in our brain that evolved to detect danger and keep us safe. And it's, it's alerting your attention to that. But in the face of things that you can't control, the only useful path forward is to accept them, which is to simply say, yep, acknowledge it and reorient your attention and efforts elsewhere. And that is, I think, one of the most important things that people can do when they notice themselves focusing, I can't buy toilet paper or I can't do this, well, then focus on things that you can do. Well, I can do some work now or I can clean the kitchen or I can make a plan. Uh, Because making a plan is an active thing that you can do even if you can't physically act. It helps you focus on the things that you can do. Uh, So that's a really important thing to help uh, get your stress under control hmm that's so good yes. yeah it's so good listener <laughs> if you uh, want to uh, connect with alex you can find him at alexcorbphd.com on twitter at prefrontal blog on facebook.com slash prefrontal nudity which i love by the way it's very funny <laughs> <laughs> thank you or I'll, I'll say it one last time. You can pick up this book, The Upward Spiral or The Upward Spiral Workbook or both uh, anywhere you buy your books. If you want to connect with Holly, you can find her at hollyoxhandler.com or on Twitter or Instagram at hollyoxhandler. You can connect with me at robert-vore.com or on any social media at robertvore. Alex, thank you so much for joining us yeah. today. Any closing thoughts for our listeners? Well, I would just say thanks so much, for having me it was a pleasure talking and that that's just a perfect opportunity to talk about the importance of gratitude that gratitude is just reorienting your attention to the parts of reality or the parts of your life that you appreciate and just because there might be you know all this crap going on around you you know everything's um falling apart well there are some parts of your life or your situation that you appreciate and you they don't have to cancel each other out but our well-being is largely affected by what we are paying attention to and so mm-hmm. if you just pay attention to the things that you appreciate and intentionally guide your attention there it can have a huge impact on your well-being because it has measurable effects on these key uh, brain circuits that regulate our emotions and so when I say thank you for having me on, I, I mean it <laughs> and I am acknowledging that sincerely, but I also know in the back of my mind, oh, and that's also helping me be happy. So 
Thank you also for allowing me to express my gratitude and improve my brain. <laughs> I love it. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMH Podcast at gmail.com.